We turn now to the reading of Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Let's hear the Word of God as it comes to us this morning. After these things, the word of the Lord came into Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he, that is God, brought him, that is Abram, forth abroad, And said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, in horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites 
and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. So far, the reading of God's uh, precious word. Let's now turn to the form of baptism, which you find, can find on page 126 in back of the Psalter. Page 126. <clears throat> The principal parts of the doctrine of holy baptism are these three. First, that we with our children are conceived and born in sin, and therefore are children of wrath insomuch that we cannot enter into the kingdom of God except we are born again. This, the dipping in or sprinkling with water, teaches us whereby the impurity of our souls is signified, and we, admonished, to loathe and humble ourselves before God and seek for our purification and salvation without, that is, outside of, ourselves. Secondly, holy baptism witnesseth and sealeth unto us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. Therefore we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. For when we are baptized in the name of the Father... God the Father witnesseth and sealeth unto us that he doth make an eternal covenant of grace with us and adopts us for his children and heirs and therefore will provide us with every good thing and avert all evil or turn it to our profit. And when we are baptized in the name of the Son, the Son sealeth unto us that he doth wash us in his blood from all our sins incorporating us into the fellowship of his death and resurrection so that we are freed from all our sins and accounted righteous before God. In like manner, when we are baptized in the name of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost assures us by this holy sacrament that he will dwell in us and sanctify us to be members of Christ, applying unto us that which we have in Christ namely, the washing away of our sins and the daily renewing of our lives till we shall finally be presented without spot or wrinkle among the assembly of the elect in life eternal. Thirdly, whereas in all covenants there are contained two parts, therefore are we by God through baptism admonished of and obliged unto new obedience, namely, that we cleave to this one God Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that we trust in Him and love Him with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our mind, and with all our strength, that we forsake the world, crucify our old nature, and walk in a new and holy life. And if we sometimes, through weakness, fall into sin, we must not therefore despair of God's mercy, nor continue in sin, since baptism is a seal and undoubted testimony that we have an eternal covenant of grace with God. And although our young children do not understand these things, we may not therefore exclude them from baptism, for as they are without their knowledge partakers of the condemnation in Adam, so are they again received into grace in Christ. As God speaketh unto Abraham, 
the Father of all the faithful, and therefore unto us and our children, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. This also the Apostle Peter testifieth with these words, for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Therefore God formerly commanded them to be circumcised, which was a seal of the covenant and the righteousness of faith, and therefore Christ also embraced them, laid his hands upon them, and blessed them. Since then baptism has come in the place of circumcision. Therefore infants are to be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of God and of his covenant. And parents are in duty bound further to instruct their children herein when they shall arrive to years of discretion. That therefore this holy ordinance of God may be administered to his glory, to our comfort, and to the edification of his church. Let us call upon his holy name. O Almighty and Eternal God, Thou who hast, according to Thy severe judgment, punished the unbelieving and unrepentant world with a flood, and hast, according to Thy great mercy, saved and protected believing Noah and his family, Thou who hast drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, and hast led Thy people Israel through the midst of the sea upon dry ground, by which baptism was signified, we beseech thee that thou wilt be pleased of thine infinite mercy graciously to look upon these children and incorporate them by thy Holy Spirit into thy Son, Jesus Christ, that they may be buried with him into his death and be raised with him in newness of life, that they may daily follow him joyfully bearing their cross, and cleave unto him in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love, that they may with a comfortable sense of thy favor leave this life, which is nothing but a continual death, and at the last day may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ thy Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with thee and the Holy Ghost one only God lives and reigns forever. Amen. I now request the parents with a child to be baptized to arise and answer the following questions. <clears throat> Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have heard that baptism is an ordinance of God to seal unto us and to our seed his covenant. Therefore, it must be used for that end and not out of custom or superstition. That it may then be manifest that you are thus minded, you are to answer sincerely to these questions. First, whether you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin, 
and therefore are subject to all miseries, yea, to condemnation itself, yet that they are sanctified in Christ, and therefore as members of his church ought to be baptized. Secondly, whether you acknowledge the old the doctrine which is contained in the Old and New Testament and in the articles of the Christian faith and which is taught here in this Christian church to be the true and perfect doctrine of salvation. Thirdly, whether you promise and intend to see these children and come to the years of discretion whereof you are parents instructed and brought up in the aforesaid doctrine or help or cause them to be instructed therein to the utmost of your power. What are your answers, Mr. and Mrs. Tom and Elizabeth Ekema? What are your answers, Mr. and Mrs. Aaron and Madeline Kemp? What are your answers, Mr. and Mrs. Luis and Karen Loeza? And what are your answers, Mr. and Mrs. Daniel and Irene Navarro? What are your answers, Mr. and Mrs. Andrew and Hannah Walcotton? And what are your answers, Mr. and Mrs. Yensha Chu and Xiaochao Wang? Dear parents, what a blessing to be here this morning with your precious infant, healthy in body, beautiful, cute, but needing to be born again. And you come with your need. You come casting yourself, as it were, before the waters of baptism that symbolize the blood of Christ and confess what I need, what my spouse needs, my child also needs. And so you stand in the presence of Almighty God, and you've just answered your yes in His sacred presence and in the presence of His church. Baptism is a holy ordinance of God. It exists for you, not because of you. It did not originate with you. God was first. We're going to hear about that in the sermon this morning. In the form of baptism, we're taught about God's covenant of grace that I just read to you about from Genesis 15. And we're taught that Baptism is not an option for your children. It's an integral part of God's covenant for you and your seed. And at the end of the baptism form, just before we pray, just before we prayed, there's this amazing statement that therefore this holy ordinance of God may be administered to His glory, to our comfort, and to the edification of His church, Let us call upon his holy name. So there you have three wonderful purposes for doing what you're doing right right now. 
first greatest goal of baptism is God's glory. That's the whole purpose of our lives. That's why we're here on planet Earth, to live to God's glory. You're to baptize your child this morning to God's glory. It's not your child's natural beauty that deserves baptism or is privileged to have baptism. It's not your parental skill that's on the foreground. It's God's glory. God is a covenant God from generation to generation. The beauty of the sacrament is marinated in soli deo gloria. And so your prayer must be, Lord, may this child receive this sacrament this morning, that it may work out throughout the child's life to thy glory. That's special. Secondly, you're baptizing this morning to your comfort, to your comfort. You need comfort. You know, you know, raising a child is not for sissies. It's no easy task. It's constantly, constant need. I was just standing in the aisle yesterday on the way home on a plane by the bathroom, and there was a lady there holding a baby and rocking the baby back and forth. I said, is it your first? She said, yes. I said, a lot of work, right? Oh, she said, a lot of work, a lot of challenges. Every parent can say that. God, it's part of our fall, too, that God didn't make child-rearing to be easy. But child-rearing is hopeful in the covenant context. This is to your comfort that you may bring your child to the blood of Christ, which is symbolized by the water. And that you may plead that promise that God has committed himself to, to saving children from generation to generation. So your comfort lies in the promises of God. And so you bring your child, pleading those promises, knowing your child is born outside of the kingdom of God, with a corrupt nature, as a child of wrath by nature. The road to hell is in front of your child by nature. But the road to heaven is placed before your child by grace. And God is promising, I'm willing to be your God and the God of your seed. Plead my promises to your own comfort. To your own comfort. But then thirdly, to the edification of his church. It's not just you baptizing your baby this morning. And it's not only God's glory, but it's also the edification of the whole church. All the visitors here as well this morning. God's declaring something this morning with these six precious children. He's declaring, I'm not done with my church. I'm going to go forward with my covenant promises. I'm going to edify my church through my faithfulness in word and in sacrament. So I will bless your seed and your seed seed. 
What a promise. You're not thinking about grandchildren yet. But what a promise that is. Thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel. God is a covenant-keeping God for generation to generation, for grandparents and great-grandparents. This is no small thing that's happening this morning. This is to the edification of the whole church of God that we may learn to plead upon Him. And therefore, because of His glory, to our comfort, to the edification of the church, let us call upon His holy name. That's it. Baptism should drive you, drive all of us to prayer. Prayer for the babies, prayer for the young people, prayer for all who are baptized here, that we would live out our baptism. That we would, as the Puritans used to say, improve it by surrendering to God and living out of it. That's the way. That's the way to live. You cry out to God. That's why the prayer then begins. O Almighty and Eternal God. There's our hope. The covenant-keeping God, who's almighty, He can give you what you cannot give to yourself. So as you come forward in a moment, do so for that threefold purpose, the glory of God, your own comfort, and the edification of the whole church. Miriam Elise, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Taya Marie, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Abigail, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Shalom Alina, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Emma Olivia, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Muin Josiah, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our text this morning is verses 17 and 18a of the portion read, Genesis 15. Just these words, it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, 
Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that pass between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying unto him, Unto thy seed have I given this land. With God's help, I want to look with you this morning at God covenanting with Abraham and his children in three thoughts. First, a confirming sign requested by Abram. Second, an impossible task attempted by Abram. And third, an unbreakable covenant made with Abram. A confirming sign requested, an impossible task attempted, an unbreakable covenant made. Ten years it was after Abram left the Ur of the Chaldees that God comes to him in a special vision in chapter 15, verse 1, and says to him, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Shield here means I'm thy protection and exceeding great reward means that God says, I will be thy all-sufficient good. I will fulfill all the promises I have given you as a covenant-keeping God. Well, Abram responds to this wonderful vision in verses 2 and 3 by pouring out his heart to God. He calls upon the name of the Lord, the Adonai Yahweh, Those are titles of God's lordship, of his possessive power and his covenant faithfulness. And he says, Lord God, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. What Abram is saying here is that God had these rich promises and was coming back and saying, I'm going to give them to you, Abram. But Abram's saying, how can it be? I'm now 85 years old and, 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 and I, I don't have any, any children. Sarah is 75. According to human calculation, it's impossible. So Lord, Let Ishmael, let him be the promise. If Lord, if thou art going to work covenantally and faithfully, and I'm going to become a great nation and be a blessing to others, all the families of the earth, this can't happen without a seed. So Abraham is looking to find his own way here, you see. But God says, Abraham, Ishmael, verse 4, shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And then God takes Abraham outside. He brought him forth abroad, takes him outside. He says to him, verse 5, look now toward the heavens. And count the stars, if thou be able to number them. 
And Abram looks up. And the whole sky, have you ever seen that, boys and girls? When there's not many city lights around, you look up and the whole sky is full of stars. And he sees all these stars. He's overwhelmed by the number of them. And in the midst of his impossibility, God says to him, So shall thy seed be. Astonishing. From their own bowels. But it's impossible. It's impossible. Yet with God, all things are possible. And then we read this amazing verse. And he, verse 6, believed in the Lord. He, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. The Lord, you see, as the righteous judge, is saying, I will not impute or count Abram's sins against him, but I'll give him a verdict of righteousness through faith in the promise, not because of his faith, but faith which is the means that receives the promise. It's not to Abraham's credit. Faith is not a good work. Faith is a reception of God's grace. It's Christ's righteousness, you see. He's justified through the righteousness of Christ. He's a receiver, not a giver. Faith receives the righteousness of Christ as a free gift from God. This is what's going on here. And this text, Genesis 15, verse 6, is quoted more than once by Paul in the New Testament to teach salvation, to teach how Abraham was justified. Abraham was not justified by works, Paul says, but by faith that relies entirely upon God, upon his promises. And then we read in verse 7. And he said unto him, God said to Abram, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. In other words, Abram, you think this is impossible? That Sarah can have a, a child? Well, how impossible was it that I called you from out among the heathen, out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and have brought you to where you are, and have saved you, and have been a God of mercy to you. I brought you out. That's a miracle. I brought you out of heathenistic idolatry. I am the same Lord now to fulfill my covenant promises. What a beautiful testimony. When you walked on the broad way, Abraham, when you serve the devil, Abram, when you serve the false gods back at Ur, when you pursued your way of destruction, I pursued you. I called you out. I performed a wonder in you. I led you into my service. I brought you to the land of Canaan. I made you a monument of my love. It's like John Newton said, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room, when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Oh, the effectual calling of God in the soul of a sinner. That's what these infants need. That's what we need 
as children, as teenagers, as adults, that God saves us, calls us out from our own natural wicked habitats, from our own inclinations to the world, from our own sin, and calls us to Himself, to salvation, in and through the passion Savior who suffers and dies for sinners. I've called you out, God says. And I've called you to the land of Canaan to inherit it. You see, this is the beauty of grace. God does the impossible. Salvation is a miracle. But God's in the business of doing miracles. That's why we have covenant faithfulness embedded in God's very name, Yahweh. I was what I was. I am what I am. I shall be what I shall be. And today, God calls His people with a parallel purpose. We are brought out from the Ur of this world. We are led to the land of the heavenly Canaan. And dear child of God, when you look back, can't you say that? Can't you say, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, but I can't deny, Lord, that thou hast called me out. The things I formerly loved, I, I now hate. The things I, I formerly hated, I now love. I'm called out, brought out by God. My heart is no longer in this world. My heart is with thee, Lord. Oh, I wish I could live perfectly. I wish all sin in me were dead. But I can't deny You have made a change in me, a radical change. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not perfect by any means, but I'm not what I once was. I have a new desire. I have a new love. I have a new life. I long for communion. I long with thee. I long to know thee better. So God is saying wonderful things to Abraham here. But then Abraham after all this reassurance, in verse 8, ask, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? That's remarkable, don't you think? Is this just sheer unbelief? No. Verse 6 says he believed in the Lord. He's acting by faith. You see, there's a difference when you ask for a confirming sign of the Lord. There's a difference between asking out of unbelief and asking by faith. Zacharias, of course, you know that story, boys and girls, of Father John the Baptist, asked this very same question, whereby shall I know this? And God struck him so that he couldn't speak. For months, because of his unbelief. But here we're told, Abraham asked this question out of faith. Out of faith. He asked for a confirming sign because God had said he would do this. And he says, well, how, shall, how shall I know that I shall inherit this land? Everything is so impossible. I believe thee, Lord, but how, how will it take place? How will it be confirmed? And so, you need to understand here that questions can arise in our lives 
that seem overwhelming. We can actually believe in the Lord, believe that he will help us, and yet seem overwhelmed and say, but how shall it ever happen? That happens in child-rearing as well. You still trust God's covenant. You still trust God's promises. But things seem so daunting, so overwhelming at times. You, you, you ask the question, how, how shall I know that my children shall be saved or shall inherit the heavenly Canaan when it seems they're so far from salvation? I trust thy promises, Lord, but everything seems to go against it. That's how Abraham felt. God had wonderful promises for him. So shall thy seat be, like the stars. But he's empty-handed. It all seems to be against the promise. Well, God responds to this request, which is grounded in faith, this request for a confirming sign, by saying to Abraham in verse 9, Take me a heifer, three years old, a she-goat, a ram, turtle dove, a young pigeon. And what God is doing here, obviously, is he's going to establish his covenant with Abram. Very visually, like a sacrament is visual. And so what happens in those days in the Middle East is that an ordinary procedure of establishing a covenant was that two people, this happened in daily life too, between two people, would enter into a covenant together and they would have an animal sacrifice. So they would split the animal in two and they lay it about four feet away from each other or several animals in a, in a row, two rows. And then both people that entered into the covenant would walk through between those two rows. And by walking through it, they signified that and sealed that they would both adhere to the agreement they had made. And that if one of them broke that agreement, they were saying, as it were, would to God that we get destroyed and killed and torn asunder like these animals if we don't abide by our part of the agreement. That was a way of doing business. Today, of course, we, the old-fashioned way was you do business with a handshake. Or now we've got all these kinds of paperwork and you've got to notarize it and everything. But in those days, a covenant was done through killing some animals and you laid half the animal on one side, half on the other, and several of them perhaps, and then you walked through. You both walked through the pieces. And that was sealed, signed, confirmed agreement. And God, destroy me if I don't abide by that agreement. So, this is God's covenant with Abraham. Abraham understands immediately what God is doing, of course, because it's, it's a common approach. So he gets all the animals, kills them, exactly according to God's prescriptions, lays them in two rows, 
Then he waits for God to come to establish the covenant with him. But God doesn't come. He doesn't appear immediately. Abraham waits and watches. The morning passes. The afternoon passes. God doesn't appear. The darkness descends. God still doesn't appear. But something does happen. Look at verse 11. After Abraham takes all these pieces, divides them in the midst, verse 10, lays them against one another, the fowls came down. These are like vultures upon the carcasses to eat up the animals, to destroy the covenant. And Abraham is busy. He's busy driving them away. It's not easy work. It's a hot day. God isn't coming. He's alone in the desert. It's a trial of faith. The animals were killed and divided. The covenant was all set to be made. But the only visitors that came were birds of prey to destroy the covenant. Now, in the context of Genesis 15, these birds of prey were a type of the unclean heathen. The unclean heathen would attempt to devour Abram's descendants in the midst of Canaan. They were a type of the powers of darkness, a type of Satan who would attack the seed of Abram who desired to prevent the birth of the Messiah. Well, Abram's trial of faith here is often the trial of, of God-fearing parents. You, you plead God's promises. But sometimes all you see are vultures. Your child's wicked heart. You don't have to teach, you won't have to teach any one of these six infants how to sin against any of the Ten Commandments. It will all come naturally to them. And every sin is like a vulture coming down, seeking to destroy them. And there's so much against our God-fearing raising of our children, the child's own heart, the world, the social media of this world, the peers, Satan. And maybe you fear your own poor example. So many vultures out to destroy the covenant that was just signed and sealed moments ago in the baptism of your child. And maybe it will be many years before you see your child being born again. And you, you, want, to, you want to know if, 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 you knew, if you knew that your child was going to be born again and saved at six years age, six years old, or eight years old, or ten, or twelve. Maybe it would be easier because you, you, you could wait and you know for sure it's going to happen. But what if, you, what if things just get darker? What if the birds of prey get thicker? What if the vultures seem to be multiplied? You see, this is what Abraham's going through. Where is God? It was a long day. It was God who told him to lay out the pieces. But God wasn't there. God grows our faith by making us wait sometimes upon His promise. God grows our faith 
by making us wait upon His promise. He doesn't just promise things and give them all to us right away. He grows us through affliction. He grows us through the vultures that come after our children so that we're dependent on Him, so that we cry out to Him. And as we go to work to spare our children, as we go to work trying to get the vultures away from eating away at the covenant of God, Sometimes we grow tired and weary, like Abram. That's true not only with our children, it's true with other cares of life as well. And we ourselves can grow lukewarm. We can be so overwhelmed with everything of life that we lose that close life with the Lord. Our prayers can lose their power. We can become less active in using the means of grace. We become weary. Weary of fighting against enemies. So did Abram. In fact, he fell asleep. He fell asleep, boys and girls. Well, he's waiting for God to come. And it seems to be almost like a supernatural sleep. He fell into a deep sleep, the Bible says. When the sun was going down, verse 12, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. It was like the dark night of the soul. What a trial this was. An impossible task for Abraham. He couldn't keep it up. He couldn't do it on his own. He couldn't do it without the Lord. There was a horrible darkness that fell upon him. He needed God. He needed God. It's a blessing to need God. And then finally, the Lord comes. The Lord comes. And he tells Abraham what's going to happen. It's going to be a long time before his descendants, which will be like the stars of the sky, will actually enter into the land of Canaan. They'll be suffering at the hands of the Egyptians and others for a good long while. But finally they'll come back. Finally they'll come back. And then you come to verse 17. And it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So what does that mean? Well, the smoking furnace was a t- symbol of the furnaces of Egypt in which the people of Israel would burn bricks. And therefore, Egypt was called their iron furnace in Deuteronomy 4, verse 20. But there was also a burning lamp, a lamp of fire, a torch. And salvation was symbolized by that light. You could even translate this, there was a fire pot for a portable stove, and there was a torch for light. One representing the Egyptian bondage and the other representing Jesus Christ, the light, the pillar of light, the pillar of fire before the Israelites in the wilderness after their deliverance from Egypt. God brought this burning lamp to pass between the pieces of the heifer, the goat, and the ram, etc. that Abraham had divided because only in Christ 
could he establish a one-sided covenant of grace with Abraham. God's promises in Christ and God's covenant with Abraham in Christ his head would be Israel's comfort, would be her burning lamp of hope in the midst of affliction, in the midst of those 400 years of affliction to come. And this lamp would shine for Abraham's offspring in a dark place. So God is teaching Abraham here that his promises will be fulfilled in the light, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he would suffer, he would be afflicted, he would die, he would be the passion savior, so that Israel could go through the fire of tribulation and affliction to inherit the promised land of Canaan. Now that is all symbolically true, even for God's people today, with regard to the heavenly Canaan. What does Revelation 7 say about those who enter into the heavenly Canaan? When the question is asked, who are these that are entering in? And the answer is, these are they who've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb and have come through much tribulation. It's the same thing. As God is saying here to Abram, God's people pass through much tribulation to enter into the kingdom of eternal glory. These are they that have come out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's all because of the light, because of the burning lamp. Because that light penetrates the darkness. Because that light has been paid for by the light himself through his own blood. Therefore, our children, we and our children can walk in the light. And so the beautiful thing is that even though the covenant, which initially is one-sided by God, established by God, God makes his people willing to respond to him, to respond to that light. And so what's amazing here is that Abraham doesn't walk through those pieces. It's God making covenant with Abram's head, which is Jesus, the light. So in the covenant of grace today, you see God the Father makes a covenant with his people, but he does so through Christ, who's their head. So the covenant establishment is one-sided because if it depends upon us or our parenthood, we would forfeit it every time. But through Christ... God works in our hearts. He makes us willing. And so we respond in the maintenance of the covenant. It does become two-sided because we are to use the means of grace. We are to walk in covenantal ways. But it's God's grace, God's sovereign grace alone, soli deo gloria, that saves us. This is the beauty. God gives everything in the covenant. We give nothing. Abraham didn't contribute anything. If He was sleeping. And God walked through the covenant in the symbol of the torch of light. The covenant in its establishment is one-sided. It's all pure grace. And God makes a willing people in the day of his power to respond to that grace. So in the covenant, it's not a contract between two equal parties, God and us. It's a contract between God and His Son. 
And we, if we're saved, are in his son. So we become the beneficiaries. God is the giver, and we are the receiver. That's what faith is. Faith is not contributory to salvation. Faith is the receiver. You see, your children are baptized with water. Picture water in a cup that you couldn't drink because the cap is locked on, but there's a straw. And through the straw, you suck in the water. Faith is the means. Faith is the straw that brings the water of life to you. Faith is is the channel through which you receive the light. Faith is the receiver, not the giver. But as many as received him, John 1.12 says, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So Abraham surrenders himself to a living God who promises to do everything for him. In terms of meriting something, he set aside completely. He couldn't even keep the sacrifice pure. He'd fallen asleep. So God comes and makes covenant with needy parents and their needy children and says, I will do it. I will be the light. And I will save your children through the light. I will be a wonder-working God and save them through Jesus Christ. This is your encouragement this morning, parents. And this is your encouragement, all you parents, even for those children who've wandered away. Absolutely. God is a covenant-keeping God in Christ. Christ is the heart in the head of this covenant. Christ, with his Father, is the covenant maker for covenant breakers. He's the burning lamp. He's the sacrifice. He's the one who's symbolized by the animals cut in two. He had a sword pierce his side. And in the sacraments, Christ is, as it were, laid open. And his blood, the blood of baptism, symbolized by the water, but also his blood in the Lord's Supper, symbolized by the wine and his broken body, symbolized by the bread. It's as if the pieces are laid out and God has walked through and says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And he makes you willing so that you covenant back to him in covenant maintenance, saying, I want to live holy and solely for thee, Lord. And you see the beauty of that, parents, is that God often uses the godly walk of parents as one of the most important means in his hand to save your children. You can't do it, but his grace in you can impact them profoundly. Millions and millions and millions of saved children have been profoundly impacted by the walk of their mom and their dad. So, the covenant doesn't depend on you, but the covenant must be reflected in you. And you must come with those covenant mercies of God to your children over and over and over again. You must talk to them. Say, you've been baptized. God's name has been placed upon you. He's willing to be your God. 
You're not like the heathen who just have all worldly influences. God is impacting you in the church, in the home, in the Christian school, or if you're homeschool. God is impacting your children in every area with the same truths. These are covenant privileges. My son, my daughter, you need to respond to these privileges. You need to repent of your sin. You need to cast yourself upon this Savior who's willing to do everything for you, for your salvation. You're privileged. But woe be to you. Woe be to you, my son, my daughter. If you reject all these privileges and go your own way and end in hell rejecting these wonderful covenant privileges. See, that's the way to talk to your children. God uses you to do what only He can do. God uses you to do what only He can do. It's a mystery. But you see, it's not just the preacher or the office bearers or the Christian school teacher or the catechism teacher or the Bible that is the means for your child's conversion can also be you. In fact, I often say a parent's walk of life next to the Bible is the most important book a child will ever read. They will read you like a book because you live with them and they live with you. You can't pull the wool over the, over the eyes of a teenager. They will know what's dear to you. You need to reflect that covenant. You need to walk in the light as a fruit of the light. And your children need to see that light in you. Like John Payton saw in his father. He said, when his father would arise from family worship after prayer, he said, I used to steal a look at the light of my father's face and wish I were like him in some small way. That's it. You've got to be a a white hot flame of zeal for the Lord. You've got to be an example for your children. And pray God that he'll use his word, that he'll use preaching, that he'll use Christian education, that he'll use catechism classes, that he'll use you and save your children by his one-sided grace. That's it. Cling to this God of promise. Cling to this faithful covenant God. He won't desert you. He won't forget you. He fulfills his own promises. And so today, he declares to you, I am your God and the God of your seed. Trust my son. Trust the blood symbolized by the water of baptism. Don't try to add to that blood. Don't try to walk through the pieces as a contributory power to your own salvation or to the salvation of your children. You can't add anything to God's burning lamp. He is the light. Become just as you are with your children. Bring them to Jesus as those people did in Mark 10. Bring them to the means of grace. Bring them poor, needy, condemnable, 
like Christiana with her children also in Pilgrim's Progress, knock at the door of God's finished work of salvation in Christ for yourself, for your children. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in the way they should go. And when they are old, they shall not depart from it. Plead that promise. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh it shall be opened. And God bless you. All of you, dear parents, with this light, this gospel covenantal light, and with his glory, and that you may be comforted, and that this morning's sermon and the sacrament of baptism may be to the edification of the whole church. Amen. Gracious God, we stand amazed at the mystery of the gospel, salvation by grace alone. Oh, we pray, Lord, help us to set aside all our own righteousness, all our fleshly works and holiness. Just make us poor, needy parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, sinners before Thee, who not only cannot be saved by some legal equal contract, but need a covenant of grace that is in its establishment, one-sided, sheer mercy, sheer grace. And assure us, Lord, that Thou wilt surely bring us through with our loved ones into glory only because of that one-sided covenant rooted in Thy eternal promises, which are yea and amen in our passion Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord Jesus We thank Thee so much for walking through those covenant pieces when we couldn't do it. We thank Thee so much for being the light, the way, the truth, the life, and for giving Thyself so that we might hear a full, free, unfettered gospel. Oh, help us then to walk in the light and to know thy covenant faithfulness, and to rest upon it and upon thy promises in thy Son. In Jesus' name, amen.